Dr. Claire Navarol trained as a specialist registrar in London before completing a PhD in developmental neurobiology at the University of Cambridge. With just 18 months left until she became a consultant, she left medicine to co-found Ada Health, an AI-powered self-assessment health tool. Ada has raised $190 million to date with over 10 million users. I would do rather than just thinking about it. Get get trying and then and then one door opens the next door and the next door. So that leads to opportunity. We speak about her decision to leave medicine when she did, whether the NHS is where startups go to die, and the power of timing and just taking a calculated risk when it makes sense for you. I hope you enjoy. So Claire, would you mind telling me a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, certainly. So I trained as a doctor in Bristol um, and I did jobs in London and Cambridge um, as a house officer and then SHO in paediatrics. Then I went into clinical genetics. Um, But I think always through medical school and my early junior doctor years, I was kind of searching for something. I was really searching for that fit in my career um, and, and where I really felt um, like I was doing the thing that was right for me. And actually, when I was in Cambridge, I then did a research fellowship with the Wellcome Trust and, and, and did a PhD. And that was really eye opening because I, I started doing a lot of extracurricular things. Um, and I started going to the business school and the entrepreneurship center and listening to a, a lot of talks by people who were spinning out businesses. Some of them were really sort of deep science, deep tech, some in the medical area, a, a, a really wide range. Um, and I'd never thought about that. I didn't know anyone who'd built a business, started a business, no one in my family. Um, but there was something so exciting about using all my medical knowledge and medical experience, um, but actually being able to build something from scratch, create something and potentially make a, an impact uh, in the world on a on a much larger scale than I could probably make seeing a few patients every day. So, so for me, it was it was this really interesting combination of everything I'd done up to that point, but then the need to bring in to learn a whole new set of skills um, and do something quite creative that that was really exciting but I really didn't I really didn't know how to take the first steps you know I didn't know anyone who'd done it and I didn't have any business experience of course Um, actually what I did is I built a a network called Doctorpreneurs and started interviewing medics who had started companies and running some events so fireside chats and and that was interesting because it kind of put me at the center of this very early network in in the UK in particular and it kind of gave me the courage. Uh, It put me in the middle of this network. So I I, I got to meet a lot of other people. That's actually through something related to that, that I then met my co-founders. But I also went to startup weekends and I was building things with engineers and so forth. So I was kind of exploring and trying lots of things to see what would stick and to learn and to build connections. And and one door, you know, you, you open a door and opportunities open up really. So it was kind of stepping stones. That's that's what happened. And then I ended up meeting my co-founders and they were just working on something that was kind of very, in the very first few months of working on something that was a precursor to what then became Ada. And they didn't have a doctor on the team. And I joined as the medical co-founder and, 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 been building Ada for 10 years, um, chief medical officer, and uh, worn a lot of hats during that time. I think one interesting part of your story is that both with Ada Health and even with setting up Doctorpreneurs, you were very early on these things. So I'm guessing that when you started Doctor Entrepreneurs, it wasn't, that wasn't really a term. And I think you guys coined that. 
And then even with Ada as well, you were very early on the AI symptom checker app kind of thing. And now there's many of them. What do you think it was about you or the way you thought that meant that you were early on these things? Was it a case of being in the right place or what was it? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think I think if I was going through medical school or a junior doctor now, I would have made the leap even earlier, actually, because I think there's just so much opportunity now. And, and most medics know other medics who've taken the leap into sort of digital health or at least dabbled in it and as an advisor or I think it's just it is more widespread and there are a lot of opportunities you can actually learn on the job on you know in someone else's scaling company um, and and if, if that's something that interests you whereas I think it took me longer because there wasn't so much uh, in the way of examples but so, so, so actually, I think I, I was looking for quite a long time for something that was, that was a combination of that included more a requirement for sort of a creativity and building something and designing. I used to love that stuff at school, and I guess I hadn't really realised how much I missed it um, at medical school. And, and but I was somehow searching. So I think that that's the thing. And then I would say it was a little bit also the environment I was in. Because maybe I would have chosen a, a, a less common path in medicine, but a quite different one if I hadn't been in that place at that time. And the fact that I was meeting people from so many different disciplines um, and people who were scientists and medics and engineers and all kinds of different backgrounds who were building companies. And, and you, it's exposure and it's having some role models and seeing other people doing it that can spark both the the interest and also kind of give you the the courage and the belief that that's actually something that's possible. So I think it, it was definitely the environment at the time for me that really helped. Another interesting part of your story is that you chose to leave medicine 18 months away from becoming a consultant. Uh, can you take me back to that time and walk me through some of the conversations you were having uh, in your own head and with others and, and why you chose to make that decision? Yeah, I think I think it was really a series of it was a it was a thinking process actually over a few years for me so it wasn't an instant it wasn't a sort of very spontaneous spur of the moment thing it was this gradual this exploration and looking at different opportunities and having many conversations and really thinking it through if i had gone back at, at the end of my phd to to my registrar um post I would have had 18 months to CCT and actually I did have a conversation with a couple of the consultants at the time who were encouraging me to go back and do that 18 months because they said you know it's just it's 18 months and you'll always have that but I think I realized in those conversations I, ha I went away and thought about it but I think I realized even in those conversations no that's not the right thing for me because I know that's not the path for me I've worked this out over a period of time and even though I don't know exactly what I'm going to do next and there's going to be a bit more exploration I'm really sure that that's not that's not the right path for me and I think you know for some people that will be the right path especially if they if they see that what they want to do next, there may be a, a big advantage to keeping their hand in clinical medicine. Um, that can be a fantastic thing to do, to combine GP or being a consultant with um, part-time with something else. But I knew it wasn't, I needed to go all in on this thing and it would involve a lot of travel and it would be all encompassing and that I wouldn't be able to really combine it with. So I was a geneticist and you, you follow up 
I think it's it's not something you can just go and do a clinic. You know, you really you then have weeks of follow up with people and te- waiting for test results. And I just didn't see a way to combine it. And I I didn't think it made sense because I knew what I wanted to do at that point in time, or at least I had a, a, enough of an idea. And then I think finally, I could see that we were at the beginning of a really exciting time in digital health very early. And I I was just too excited about grasping the opportunity now. I didn't I didn't want to waste time. I wanted to get on with it. So with your two co-founders, you had the the business person, the tech person, and then you're kind of the medical person. And I'd be really interested in hearing about the story of Ada and, and how it came to be. But I'd also be interested in what course corrections or what influence you had as as a medic and how you might have changed things with that experience. Yeah, so in the very early days we actually focused on building out clinical decision support for specialists. We started with this one area, vertigo, and then we started to look at moving into neurology, which was sort of, uh, there's overlap, of course. Um, and and so pretty early on, I was I was very involved in, in user testing with clinicians and gathering that feedback and looking at the product and s- sort of seeing where I just didn't think giving a lot of my own feedback, you know, this just won't make sense to a, a clinician. And this this instantly, this design instantly breaks when you think about this. Um, and, and so I played a role as kind of a little bit of an internal user, but also, of course, you have to go out and get exper- uh, in, input from ex- external experts who would potentially be your users or your customers. So, so that was very much my role. Uh, pretty early on, I I started to push for us gathering the information directly from patients rather than from clinicians because, of course, clinicians just don't have the time to input this data into a, into a system and on top of everything else they're doing. And one of the things we realized earlier or early on was that we would have much more impact if we put our technology sort of earlier in the patient journey. So if, if you're working with tertiary specialists, um, they they get the patients after often several years of traveling through the system, uh, seeing many clinicians, misdiagnoses uh, for for these difficult cases and often unnecessary investigations and ineffective treatment. And you're not having the impact if you you put the the solution in the hands of these specialists that you could have um, if it was in the hands of the GP, for example. So pretty early on, I was pushing for let's go broader and let's go earlier in the patient journey. But of course, we had to then really dramatically widen the coverage, the, the, the conditions that we covered. And we had to simplify it and make it really quick and easy to use because, I mean, GPs maybe have seven minutes, maybe 10 minutes in some countries have one or two minutes. Um, so that was a really interesting evolution of the product, really, to to think about how can we how can we make this quick and simple and easy to use. And ultimately, what it led us to do is is gathering the information from the patient. So we thought, you know what, a GP doesn't have the time to enter this; they're not going to do it. We were testing, and we could see they were not going to do it, which also sort of seemed kind of logical to me, having you know clinical having experience in general practice and and so forth. But if you could collect that information from the patient and hand it over to the clinician in advance of a consultation, then you're you're saving them time rather than taking additional time and you're doing something valuable because they have that information up front that they w- might not have had the time to collect they might not have thought of asking some of these questions the patient has the time they want to share this information and you can potentially in due course even use that information to 
prioritize patients and to triage and to send them to alternative um, care services if more appropriate. So we, it was kind of this evolution where we, we, we went more and more upstream to earlier in the patient journey. And as we were building that out, we thought, let's just, let's just launch this also direct to the end user. Everyone uses Google these days to search um, you know, their symptoms and try and work out what they have. Let's put it in the hands of the end user. And we did that in parallel with building out this pre-assessment capability. And then, and then uptake just soared, you know, and we were, we were um, scaling in 150 or more countries. Yeah, so it was really an evolution. Now, the, 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 main, way, the, the main way we monetize is via large health systems, also health insurers, um, as this kind of digital front door. So it's, it's like a pre-assessment and care navigation and then handover um early in the patient journey um and navigating them into primary care emergency care are very often online um care these days and and we have that consumer app uh, still as as well but it was it was a learning process and we evolved as we as we learned from the market and through the user testing from what you've said and other examples it seems like you can have a very very good idea that would be very very helpful for patients but if it a costs clinicians more time and B, doesn't make financial sense in terms of either costing the health system more money or at least not being cost neutral, then it just won't get integrated, it seems. It seems like you need to, you need to manage those things as well. Yeah, I mean, definitely you have, to, um, you have to align the clinical use case with a commercial use case. And uh, you, so you have to align with the incentives of your customers and your users. And it's interesting, I mean, and, and the incentives aren't always... Uh, well aligned in healthcare and it can differ uh, in different parts of systems and different countries and so it is something you need to think very carefully about because yeah clinical benefit is important but you actually have to find a way to get paid and someone willing to pay you. (laughs) One thing I've noticed is that Ada doesn't seem to have a massive NHS presence and I was really curious about your thoughts on the statement that uh, the NHS is where startups go to die. What, What do you make of that? So I think the NHS can be a great partner if you're willing to really take the time, spend the time and put the resources on focusing on the NHS, on understanding the NHS, on tailoring your solution to the needs of the NHS and the way it works, on building those relationships. Um, But I think it does take a really dedicated commitment over the long term. Um, to be successful there. And it can be slow. Um, So if you want to put all of your eggs in the NHS basket, then you may need to be willing to be quite lean um, for a long time. I think there are moves towards some more centralised commissioning right now for certain sort of technical solutions. So um, there can potentially be big contracts and long contracts for, for solutions that really show that they're making a difference and that they're of value to the NHS. But again, I think it's just really hard to succeed there without the relevant focus and commitment on the UK and the NHS um, and building those relationships and being patient. It's not something we've done some things with the NHS and pilots. We we haven't focused very strongly on it in our early years because, you know, I think you have to be all in to really make it work there. But we do see an opportunity um, and uh, there could be some interesting things that we're doing um, uh, in the in the year ahead. So we, we might well have more of a presence there soon. In your transition from working as a doctor and an academic to then 
founding and running Ada. What kind of things have you picked up about leadership and managing people? So I think many different personalities, people and personalities can be good leaders. So there's no one, I don't think there's a a single way to lead effectively. Um, And I think I'm a very different leader to many of my colleagues in terms of my style and how I interact with people um, and, and different and different approaches can work. I mean, for me, what what really works is is hiring people who I think are just really way better than me at what I'm hiring them to do. So they're the expert and then I place a lot of trust in them. Basically, I am there to strategize and to brainstorm and to align with each other and provide support but they're very much in in the lead on the things that they're responsible for and that they're driving and and building their team and and pushing that forward so i i give quite a lot of space and freedom to the people that work for me and it's all about hiring really great people and putting them in the the roles and then uh, trusting them but um being there to to drive the alignment. But I would say that my role has changed a lot over the years. So in the very early, in the in the first few years, I, I mentioned it, I was wearing lots of hats and doing lots of things myself. And so you need to be willing to be a juggler and a bit of a jack of all trades, a master of none. And you need to be, you're an individual contributor a lot of the time across many things as well as a leader. And, and so you have to learn your role evolves as the business scales um, and uh, you, you you need to learn to change and evolve as the company evolves um, and to lead differently now to how you led early on. So it's a constant learning process and an evolution. Before we started recording, you were mentioning that you're more of an introvert and that you actually find these kinds of speaking engagements a bit draining. And I was just curious to ask you, that it seems like in the business world, it favors being an extrovert. And I just wanted to know what your experience has been of being an introvert in the business world. I think it does favor being an extrovert. And in the earlier days, especially, I spent a lot of time out building relationships and networking and on stage. And then once we really started to scale, there was a lot of... um, there are a lot of requests to do interviews and to speak at events. I still get a lot, but I do fewer of them now than I did because I realized that it's something that it takes me quite a bit of energy and thinking in the way that it doesn't. My co-founder, for example, um, and, and many others who really love to do it and really enjoy it. In certain circumstances, I also enjoy it, but in others, uh, it's so I, so I have to be more selective and I have to do less of that. Um, and that that can be that can be challenging when it's expected of you. Uh, yeah, I also think interacting in in the business, I favor writing things down rather than speaking to the whole company or small group uh, meetings, smaller meetings and one to ones rather than sort of talking at a large number of people. So it, you can still be a really good leader and you can still have a real impact, but you have to start, you have to learn to know yourself well and to kind of adapt and, and work out where, where you're strongest and how you can have the most impact and be okay with saying I do less of those things because that's not where I'm at my best. 
I find this explore exploit framework quite interesting, which is the whole notion that early on in your career, you should be in exploration mode, saying yes to a lot of things, doing a lot of different things. And then later on, you need to nail down what you're actually good at or what your purpose is and go into exploit mode and focus on those things. And in your example, it seems like early on, you were very much in explore mode where you were setting up a community of doctor entrepreneurs. You were at lots of speaking engagements. You were at doing your PhD, going to business events, like just really getting to know people. And then now you seem to be in more of an exploit mode. Do you think that's fair to say? And I would also be curious about just how beneficial or what the impact of building that network early in your career has been to get you to where you are now. Yeah, there are parallels there between explore and exploit in a business and in uh, your life or your career. Um, and I do, I do think that's true. I was exploring, like sort of divergent thinking, opening up uh, the possibilities and, and looking widely and exploring and building my network because I, I hadn't yet found that thing that felt like the right thing for me to focus in on and then give my all to. But once you find it and once you commit and you decide, then it takes an incredible effort to build something from nothing and to really get something off the ground. And to be honest, you think that many people think when they're building a startup that the challenges were hardest at the uh, in the earliest stages and then they go away but the the truth is that there are always always challenges and as you grow the challenges just get bigger and the stakes get higher um so you you have to be very dedicated and very focused but then as you start to build a team you start to distribute the responsibility so it's no longer all on you in the way that it was or it felt to be in the earliest stages. So then you can afford, I think, to personally sometimes take uh, a step back and and re sort of re-explore what you should be spending your time most of your time on or, or doing more or less of. So I think it's it's especially true that difference between my when I was looking for something to do and then I was doing it. But even within this role, um, I have times of deep focus and really needing to drive to a particular goal and then times of being able to step back and readjust and look around and, and change things. I'm asking this question as someone who, you know, admires a lot of what you've achieved. And the question is, does life get a lot better when you get to, you know, found your own company and run your own company? Is it the case that, you know, when you're a junior doctor slaving away, your life's like a seven out of 10 or a six out of 10, and then you you found this company, you kind of, you find what you're made to do and then life becomes a nine out of 10 or is it pretty much the same? What's your experience been? And I think that very much depends on the person and depends on the circumstances. Um, I think for me, yes, because even though it's been hard, it's been absolutely exhilarating building a company and it's really a privilege. Um, it's really a privilege to be able to hire amazingly talented people and work with them and use your so many different parts of your brain and your experience and their experience in combination to plan things and design things and put things out into the world and take on a lot of responsibility in trying to make a difference in people's lives. I feel like that's a privilege and it's incredibly interesting because there's endless things you need to 
improve on and get better at as a person as well as a company and learn. Um, and I, ha- I have obviously the clinical knowledge and and everything, but it's applying it. And then it's also building up a business, an understanding of business and, and how to build a business and product and data science and AI, you know, I mean, there's so many aspects to it. And so for me, because I'm someone who loves to learn all the time, um, I, like that is amazing. Um, and it just suits, it suits me and it's still, it's hard. And there are moments where it feels really hard, but it, I've never once questioned was making that leap the right thing for me. I, I know it was. And I've really loved doing it. And I think for me, it probably did go from a seven in 10. I mean, I wasn't really cut out for night shifts and weekends. I did them, but, you know, but it 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 did feel like more of a fit for me. But it's obviously going to be a very personal, a very personal thing. And I think if people are sure with something, then it's just worth being brave and taking a leap because you can always, you can always go backwards you know go back that there's like there's always going to be a need for clinicians um and there's always going to be employment and interesting things you can do Uh, I think if you're really sure take that leap I think for people who are on the fence there are now quite a lot of ways that you can test the water you know you can try things being an advisor working part-time with a tech company and, and, and a wide array of things doesn't need to be a digital health company. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do that are outside of the most well-trodden and known paths these days. And I think there's a lot of ways to dabble and to test things out without having to immediately make that full leap. Throughout your career, have there been any habits or ways you approach things that have been helpful for you? I think um, probably the overarching theme is being flexible and adaptable and driven able to overcome hurdles and just keep going but with that one I think it really helps to have co a co-founder and co-founders and um as you build out the team others who when you're struggling or finding it something tough they're they're on a they're feeling optimistic you know so you can sort of like it's not all on you you can share that load a bit and you can cover for each other when um maybe one of them is feeling like, oh my goodness, you know, this is a really, really tough um, challenge ahead. Um, but you do need to be resilient. Um, and I think it's this combination, adapt, being adaptable, flexible, resilient, determined. The needs of the business have changed a lot over the years, but that ability to flex and t- take on different roles and to change my role as the company has evolved has been essential habits is that that's not habits really is it that's more a um an approach uh to things mm. do you know one thing I do all the time but that's just because I'm, I'm that's just me is I read a lot um so at night I've got two small children so sometimes you know it can be quite late when they finally fall asleep but I always read and I think that really it's a way to recharge for me and I really, and I do a lot of reflection on the business and on the things I want to get better at. So I read really widely and a lot of different subject areas, many, not only, but many relating to scaling a business and building products and leadership and so forth, but a really wide range. And I find that 
really great because it gives me a lot of ideas that I can then try out and work with and suggest to other people um, in the company. Um, and there's usually somebody in the company who's done something like this before and knows more about it than me, but it also really helps for me to get to a level on that subject where I can have a conversation about it with that person who's really an expert um, and, and a useful conversation. I, that's really been because I didn't go to business school and I hadn't worked in a business before this. So combining busy days with then sitting back at the weekend and at night and reading a lot and thinking a lot has been great. Are there any books that you'd highly recommend looking into or that you found particularly influential either for yourself or uh, for the business? Goodness, I I have surely more than a thousand books. I've so many books and I haven't read all of them, but I love being able to dip in when I'm thinking about something and I find those few books that are relevant there and so I, a, a lot of books so I I do think for somebody thinking about building a business a good read is the hard thing about hard things it really it shows you just how crazy things can get uh, when trying to build and scale a business and some of the things in that book are painfully feel quite painfully realistic to me when I when I read it um but it's quite extreme some of the things in there so it's a really it's a really good read and an interesting one to read um either before or early when you're sort of building a business but I think um a zero to one is another one it's quite well known but I think that's a good one early on to read and then and then it can change as you scale a business um there are a bunch of books that are relevant to scaling that would be less interesting for the very early stage founder, but more interesting once you're scaling your team and, and you have a different set of things sometimes to to think about. Um, I mean, blitz scaling is one of the mo- one of the best known, but but there's also um, like the high growth handbook. There's one on scaling um, written by a bunch of people in the UK, like sort of founders and people in scale ups, which I also quite found quite nice to read. Um, uh, sort of lots of practical tips and and a lot that I related to. Um, I really enjoyed recently this Working Backwards, which is about Amazon um, and written by a couple of very senior employees who were close to Jeff Bezos there. Um, and it, it really, it's, it's the best book about Amazon I've read. It really gave me a lot of insights into how they've been so effective as a company at churning out innovative sort of products whilst at massive scale, constantly building new business models and reinventing. Um, and it's a s- special kind of culture, but I definitely think there's things that you can take from what they do. Um, it's, it's quite an interesting read, that one. What advice would you give either your 20-year-old self or another 20-year-old with similar aspirations to you? Yeah, if I could advise my 20-year-old self, I would probably advise to make the leap to building a startup even sooner. Not that it was even on my mind when I was 20, but if I could go back and do it again, I would have done that even sooner. Um, And I think if I was advising 20-year-old medics today, if they have an interest, then I would say start getting some relevant experience in that area to see if you feel like it's for you early. Um, There's so much you can do now with clubs and pitch competitions and these sort of things at university and accelerators where you don't even need a team for some of these accelerators. You can turn up as an individual, even pre sort of idea. 
Um, so there's a whole range of things like that. Uh, and there's a lot of companies that are looking for young talent. And, and so I think there's, I would just get started early. I would not be afraid to take a year out to do it if you feel like that's the right thing for you or take some sort of some hours at the weekend or at night to uh, try building your own thing. Um, there's, there's so many opportunities. So I, I, would, I would do rather than just thinking about it, get, get trying and then, and then one door opens the next door and the next door. So that leads to opportunity. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.